Welcome to an in-focus edition of On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I've been increasingly curious about student success across higher education, how it has changed, and what institutions are doing to engage and retain a new generation of learner. I'd like to thank the folks at NAC for bringing this conversation together. I encourage you to go to joinnac.com where you can capitalize on your NACs and make the most of your skills by helping your peers. Now, on to the episode. Okay, I am often not uh, going into an interview, um, not nervous maybe, but uh, sort of on my uh, on my on my heels here, but I'm going to be podcasting and having an interview here with uh, Dr. T.J. Logan of Ohio State University. Uh, he's AVP for Residential Experience at Ohio State. And before we started recording here just now, I, I learned that he had quite the podcast experience during COVID and uh, thousands of downloads and keynoting with podcast episodes. Uh, Dr. Logan, you I didn't realize this is your medium. Uh, it is one I have loved for quite a long time. I've, I've been an avid, uh, they always say longtime listener, first time caller. I was I was a longtime <laughs> listener before uh, we got into the pandemic and it felt like the right medium at the right time to have what were selfish, meaningful conversations about the industry, about where we were going and, and how we were going to get there. Um, and so I got to to hang out with, with people that I admired and, and enjoyed spending time with. And the rest of the world got to benefit from that too. So, so it started very selfishly and turned into what what I hope was a really fun endeavor for lots of people. Now we're just waiting on the the set of three different books, the trilogy from Doctor Logan. That's right. <laughs> um, look, you're in an interesting position in your role in higher ed, and I think uh, you know. Look, I'll say this: I won't be the first voice, but we really are at an inflection point in higher education. There are so many conversations around sort of what is the value? Are we even looking at it through the correct lens? Are we using algorithms from the past that don't apply today? Talk with me a little bit about just your perspective. Um, when you think about the resident, the student experience, and not really sort of your professional perspective, but what questions you think students are having that are, there's, they're thoughtful questions, because I'm finding yeah. that these young people are far advanced from when I was in school, we were talking about I'm an alum of Michigan State, you're there. So just a couple of Big Ten guys. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember having these sort of internal conversations with myself that I'm hearing outwardly from students. Can you talk a little bit about the questions that you're hearing that lead you to believe that we're dealing with a much more savvy and sophisticated student population? Yeah, you know, I go back and forth on that because I, I think during the pandemic, um, especially in the early days, early weeks, early months of the pandemic, what we were doing was talking out loud for the first time about the industry in a way that I, I had not heard it been talked about, and particularly from the perspective of parents and students, right? It felt like in that moment, the curtain had been pulled back. And there was that that core question of the value because students were saying, look, if I can go to school online, if I can get on Zoom with a bunch of folks and get the same value, at least that's what you're telling me because you're not going to discount my tuition you're not going to, you know, and that's what we saw by and large across the industry. Then why is this worth my my time and, and my dollars to spend in the housing and the food and the in the all the other things that we have built into what we call the student experience on a college campus? And so in the early days, I, I was right there with you. It felt like that was going to be the foundational core question. 
as we worked our way through a year and into sort of that second year, it felt like the tides turned a little bit. And what we heard students saying is, I'm hungry to get back on campus. We we heard students who were missing out on a, a year of their college experience, we whether it be their, their first year or their last year. We heard students coming from high school saying, you know, I already did this in high school. I want that college experience. I'm hungry for that face-to-face experience. And so now I think we're at a moment where we know a little bit about both, right? We know that, and and there's data to back this up, we know that the student experience is valuable. We know that students want to be on campus and they've returned particularly to to certain types of campuses in really, really big numbers. The the campuses that, that got hurt during the pandemic most were community colleges. That was a sector we didn't think we would see getting hurt, right? We thought that sector was going to do really well because they were so narrowly focused on the deliverable of just the education and and the and the student experience was always sort of different in that context than than what we were seeing in in some of these big state institutions um and and yet some of these these larger institutions have continued to do really really well from an enrollment perspective even when enrollment nationally is continuing to decline or the the number of traditional aged 18 to 24 year olds continues to decline so so i feel like we've learned about the value of the student experience and we've also learned about the things that can be done online and the things that can't. Um, it, and I think we've learned that both as consumers, when we think about students and parents and and, and those types of folks, and as institutions. Um, I still worry. I worry that that the ins- the industry had uh, got bailed out a little bit, particularly with CARES money, and it deferred a crisis. And and we haven't quite seen that yet in the industry that that we're probably going to see around this corner, particularly for for small private institutions. Um, but but I don't think we're through this yet. I I think we're just now still discovering some of of what those foundational questions are and how we're going to answer them. And I've candidly been very, very surprised. Um, You know, if you go back to some of my podcast episodes from early (laughs) on, some of the guesses we made, we we missed on. And and that's what it was about, was having these kinds of discussions. And and now we're seeing the realities. One of those realities, and you chalk the field for me, I would think is around the way in which we understand learning gaps because we had them happen right in front of our face and to understand in essence, what would stick and what would not stick. It's like we sort of had the, you know, the Windex or the uh, duct tape approach that we had to have in the moment. But I do think it revealed some potential opportunities to understand the way in which young people learn, the way in which we proctor that learning and the way in which we support sort of ongoing support systems and mechanisms. Because I think we had just sort of rested on our laurels for a long time. You don't have to say it, but I'll say it. And, you know, we had our established services and supports out there and we just figured we kind of checked the box and everybody was good. Didn't mean it was quality per se, but I don't think there was malice intended at all. But I do think when you have something as cataclysmic as (laughs) what we've gone through, it does sort of say to us, okay, maybe this is an opportunity to explore the way in which teaching and learning takes place how we think about support systems, where we identify gaps, and then how we fill those gaps. And can we do it in an equitable fashion? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you completely. And the the examples I always use are, you know, had you asked uh, student affairs professionals in in a world pre-pandemic, can you deliver counseling uh, largely online? 
They would have said no. But now ask those same professionals, hey, would you do a televisit with your doctor? They'd say, well, yeah, I did that for two years, right? And, so, <laughs> and I've so got we, one tomorrow. <laughs> and I have one tomorrow. And so we've moved that needle on, you know, what are what are the things that have to happen face-to-face or more effective face-to-face? What are the things that, that we can do online and to what extent, too? I, I mean, that that's the other part of the discussion is, is are you you phasing things to be able to deliver support services online um, in phase one of that? And then, you know, really understanding at, at what point does that have to move to a face-to-face interaction or engagement? Um, and I still think we're learning. But I, I do think that we shook loose a bunch of things that, that probably wouldn't have been shaken loose had it not been for the pandemic. Now, when it comes to support and students, I mean, I remember going back to school or when I was in school, you didn't really think about going to get support unless you absolutely had to get it. That's just, maybe it was a stigma, right? Maybe it was tied to mental health when we think about even just academic support. Um, Is that an area that we are doing a better job of evaluating and or are we seeing different types of support needs come and be much more public without the stigma, meaning I need support academically. I'm looking for this. I'm acting much more like a a customer than a student, meaning I am a a paying customer and I need some assistance. That feels like it's shifting a bit. Am I wrong? Yeah, I I mean, I think the the shift was already uh, well in in place pre-pandemic. You know, one of the things that that I began to say early in the pandemic and continue to think is very, very true is that, you know, COVID did not create new problems for us. They just accelerated the existing and known problems. And so that the pace and the speed. And so, you know, when you think about what I coin as the social services, the the, the wraparound services that we provide to students on college campuses today and, and how that's exploded, um, that was well on its way pre-pandemic. And, and I think it's only gotten bigger. And I, I, I do tend to agree with you that I think that stigma has a lot to do with that. You know, I think about my own children and, and my children, uh, two of the three of them um, have exper- have gone through some form of therapy and there's no stigma around it at all. They talk about how their classmates do the same. And they, I mean, and, the, and these are middle and high schoolers. And so um, that was not the case when I was in middle and high school. When I was in, in that age group, you would have, there would have been a lot of stigma attached to that. You never would have said that out loud in the classroom. And, and now it's nothing to hear a kid say, you know, hey, in my therapy appointment the other day, or my therapist said, um, so so the language around it and, and how we've normalized things, I, I think, has certainly accelerated the need there. Absolutely. Look, when we think about higher ed, I think higher ed and actually K-12 as well, we've been given sort of this extended leash or pass when it comes to technology that in essence, we can have our own plan outside of what our daily lives experience outside of a classroom or a lecture hall, which is we're completely fine with our data being shared with our banking and we've got all these other things going on. But when it comes to education, we can go at a different pace. We can integrate in maybe a slower uh, approach, that sort of seems to be off the table completely. These students are requiring sort of on demand. They want it in their pocket. They want to be able to travel and still attend a class and also be there in person when they can. Are, Are these discussions behind the scenes? Do you find not just at Ohio State, but just sort of writ large through the industry? Are, are these actively being discussed to think much more about these young people as young professionals? Because if we think about them as a young professional in an entrepreneurial setting or a corporate setting, these are the things that they're going to be experiencing. And isn't that part of our job is to set them up for success in those environments? 
Yeah, I, I think that those discussions are most definitely happening behind the scenes. I think at the core of those types of discussions is this notion of silos. And, you know, I think particularly in a, a pre-pandemic world, we were in a place where uh, entities on college campuses, particularly large ones, had license to operate in those silos. So, you know, I, I could say as an example, you know, I'm I'm the registrar. This is the student information system I'm going to use. And and whether it works for that, that or that doesn't matter to me. It's this is my thing. And I, I tend to believe and have seen at a variety of different institutions that we can't function that way anymore because it doesn't align. It's not congruent with what the customer experience is expected to be. Um, and it goes back to your original thought and question is, you know, what's the true value of higher education? What's the outcome people are seeking? It's not just to spend X number of hours, spend X number of dollars and walk away with the credential. It, it has to do with placement and real world applicability. And if you're not having those discussions in the background, then you're probably not doing the best job of connecting those dots. I hear colleagues all over the country talking about, and, and some will put it on the labor crisis, some will put, there's a number of different reasons they are, but but at the end of the day, one common theme is, what are we going to stop doing? And when somebody says, what are we going to stop doing? What I hear is, what are we going to be narrowly focused on? What is the most important outcome? And how do we connect all these dots, break down these silos to make sure we can achieve the thing? And, and I think that's a great thing for the industry because for a long, long time, we've all aimed at the middle and we've tried to be all the things to all the people. Yeah, and in I guess in um, in the spirit of marketing, right, and creating this sort of collective yeah. interest in our given campuses, which is understandable. You've got to keep the lights on. You've got to create interest and research. Uh, so all of those things are 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 definitely necessary. Um, Look, we got connected through the concept or the discussion around tutoring. And I think about that from a yeah. support element. And this goes to the stigma we were talking about with mental health. But I wonder, to your point around silos, it does feel like when we think about tutoring, it almost feels like it could be a almost like a secret weapon. I can't think of a better way to put it, meaning that it, it does provide, if done correctly, I think, in a sort of new world order, it does provide an opportunity to thread a needle through different silos across the campus yeah. experience for a student, especially if you are engaging students on both sides of the equation. Right. <laughs> Can you sort of shed some light on that? This conversation has been supported by our friends at NAC. Go to joinnac.com to capitalize on your NACs. Now, back to the show. That's absolutely true. I, I think, uh, you know, when we look historically at how we've handled tutoring on college campuses, you know, one is, is you're right, that does logically connect sort of different entities on campus. But we've looked at it uh, purely as a service provided to students as an end user to help them perform better academically. And, and what you're leaning into and, and what I think is the piece that's been missing is the other side of that. You know, we live in an on-demand world. We live in a gig economy. And when you start to utilize the other end of that to engage students as the tutors, and you start to engage them in developing their career skills, you start to engage them um, in being leaders, you you get both ends of the scale. Now let's add a whole nother level to that. If we know that we've got a pool, to go back to your, your notion on, on data, if we know we have a huge pool of tutors who are experts in a variety of different subjects, matters. You know who else would love to know that? The industry uh, that, that, ex that, that are experts in that subject matter. And so now we can connect those students and the dots of those students to others. And so it's not just stopping at the success of the lowest common denominator. How do, how do we create success throughout the, 
the life cycle uh, of a student by by embracing it in a, a little bit of a bigger way. So let's talk a little bit about your learning journey. Uh, yeah. I'm going to make a guess. We're similar ages. Maybe I'm just basing that on hair color here. Sure. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally not fair. Right. Hey, we both uh, have it though. That's good. We, have, we, we still have the hair. <laughs> Don't jinx us now. Um, so when you, because we can make changes, what seems like so much quicker than we ever have before. And in saying that as a compliment to higher ed, along with technology and everything else in the world, I would think that being in your position, you have maybe not daily, but weekly, or at least on some semi-regular uh, basis, these experiences where you think, well, now that's different than what I experienced as a college student. You know, uh, what is yeah. that like for you? Just one as just a human, as a professional, yeah. as a dad, but also when you think about how it impacts your knowledge base to do your job better, broader, more equitable on a rolling basis from year to year. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm lucky in in some regards that I've always been very conscious of of that potential bias. Um, I I went to a large state institution as an undergrad, and I remember uh, when I I graduated from there with my undergrad, I actually I got employed. I, I started to work for that institution, and I remember very early on in my tenure, looking around the table and hearing people talk about what we should do or how things were or how things ought to be. And I quickly was able to identify that I was the only one at that table that had a large state institution experience. I was sitting at the table with with other professionals who had had very different undergraduate experiences than my own. And for me, the lesson to take away from that was not that I knew more or, or they knew less or any of those other things. It was that I, I wanted to be very, very careful about putting my bias on onto the experience that that I was trying to create for students, that it, it had to be co-authored, it had to be co-created, and that that my job largely was to facilitate and to make sure, you know, the word I keep going back to is relevance, to make sure that we're doing the most relevant thing possible with the resources available for our students. And so I feel very lucky that I had that experience very early on because I've carried that with me. Um, and I try to lead in that way where, you know, I'm I'm always saying, I'm, I'm not the person who's going to tell us what it is we're going to do. I'm the person that's going to give you the why and sometimes a little bit of how we're going to get there. But the what? We've got to co-author that and we've got to embrace experts in, in getting to that place. And oftentimes those, those experts might be our students. Sometimes it even goes beyond that. You know, as an example right now, we're master planning and, you know, students will come in and say, we think you should do this, this and this. And I say, I love your feedback. Your feedback means the world to us. But by the time the first project's done, you'll be long out of grad school. And so um, your feedback's <laughs> going to count, but I'm also interested in what are the trends for that next generation that are in fourth grade right now? And how do we make sure that we're making our facilities work for them as well? So it's not that I don't want the feedback. It's that that feedback gets put in a pot with a lot of other different things. How did you know I have a fourth grader? See, this is what this synergy we have here. <laughs> I do here. too, yeah. You do, okay. <laughs> I do, I do. But it's a great point because my fourth grader is a part of a school that has in high school, it's a dedicated entrepreneurial program. It's one of the yeah. first in the country. So you can imagine, and he's already getting experiences as a fourth grader with that program. That will impact his choice of university. Right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. The the experiences of, of K through 12 right now. And so that, you know, to go back to that master plan, we are very, very intentional in that the firm that we've partnered with on that planning process isn't just a, a higher ed advisory firm. They've got a K through 12 sector 
in their firm. And by doing that, what we're able to do is look at data from that K through 12 sector and utilize that and employ that in some of the work that we're doing. Um, my kids are similar, you know, it, it, to go back to your earlier example of, boy, it wasn't like that when, I, you know, I didn't get a Chromebook on the first day of school. That wasn't a <laughs> <Yeah>. thing, <laughs> but now, now students do. And, and now what probably would have been considered cheating when I was in, in K through 12 is considered collaborating. Right. And so, Yes, we need to model those environments when when folks are looking at the higher ed environment. And I think we need to to sort of come at it and and burn that candle from both ends. That yes, we have to model what they're they're doing in K through twelve, but always for the purpose of what's going to prepare them for what's happening in the real world and and modeling it for that as well. And and so I think we we have to make those those ends meet as much as we can. So there's an expert, and I I cannot recall her name. Um, I just saw her in New York at a YPO event, which is the largest collection of CEOs in the world, representing like $9 trillion in revenue mm. and 22 million employees. So a pretty impactful group. Yeah. And she was talking, I think it's Heather McGowan. She's a, a, a fantastic expert in the, in the human resource space, talent. And she was talking about, we're not, you know, we talk about sort of the great quit and all these sort of, you know, we've got these monikers, but she dwindled it down to the great reset. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that that was an apt way to describe where we are, regardless of industry. And do you agree with the Great Reset? And does this provide you with sort of a jolt of mid-career excitement in what you have looking forward? Because we don't have all of the answers, but that's part of the fun. Yeah, I, I'll tell you one of the uh, most unpopular things I probably say is that the Great Resignation w- was a gift for higher education, right? It allowed us to have a lot of vacancy all at one time and to sit back and reevaluate what was that singular or or few things that we went, we needed to be exceptional at and build organizations to serve that purpose. And without the great resignation, you wouldn't have had the capacity to do it and the space to do it. On a personal level, I think everybody's done that though. Everybody sat back and said, what's important in my life and how do I structure my work and my life in a way that, that is more fulfilling and and there's there's that great reset i think built into each of us individually as well you know one of the things to tie all this together when we think about master planning space planning the great resignation what's important to folks i i think that that's going to be the really interesting future for us is thinking about space use as an example higher education is one of those places that we have an opportunity to get bigger while getting physically smaller from a footprint perspective um, to embrace work from home uh, to move away from, when you think about talent acquisition and management, from rules-based work environments to results-based work environments, which we've never been really great at. And, and if we can get into those kinds of spaces, not only can we educate students for, for the, the future of work, we can be the future of work where those, those students want to be a part of that. And so I think the reset happened both on individual employees, but I, but I think for higher ed, we get to reset a little bit too and be more relevant as we move forward. Yeah, an incredible opportunity for all involved and where we are equitable and the power differential isn't Absolutely. just leaning in one in one direction. Well, Dr. Logan, what a pleasure to spend some time with you. I know people can't see it, but you've got an incredible office. I don't know if I'd want to work <laughs> remote there, especially if you're an Ohio State fan. You've got 
You've got I've all got the it gear all here. <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm a very lucky guy, but I I do, and it's very near and dear to my heart. I, I work in what was formerly a, a residence hall, and and this tower, uh, the the bottom half of it is is now some office space, and the top half is still residential. So we have students in and out of here constantly. And if you look out my window, you can see the practice facility on one side, and you can see the stadium, the horseshoes on the other side. And uh, this afternoon, I'll get to to listen to the band out on the field, and uh, there's no cooler place to be and so uh, i'm a lucky guy you you are a you are a, a professional student and i say it in the best sense of the word taking advantage of the environment around you to better your life your families and those students and professionals that you work with what a, what a what a special time of year uh to talk about these issues when when education is so important to the development of young people you're doing a great job dr logan i hope this is the first of many conversations given your podcasting history maybe i'll see you on the airwaves in another context but um a happy holiday season to you thank you for all that you do we want to thank dr logan he's the avp for residential experience at the ohio state university i'm dr rod berger this concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.